Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. And welcome to a new episode of Geek Town's Behind the Scenes podcast. I'm your host, Dave Elliott, and on this episode, I'm chatting with composer Matthew Jansen. Matthew began performing piano at the age of five, but as is somewhat appropriate for us, he's a bit of a geek and has always been fascinated by the correlation between math and music. This led him to a degree in acoustical engineering from Purdue University in Indiana before he headed to LA to take up composing as a career. Since 2007, Matthew has worked on a string of movies and TV shows for people such as Lifetime, Sci-Fi and Hallmark, working in both animation and live action. He's provided additional music as well, for shows such as Law and Order, SVU, Be Cool, Scooby Doo, and our very own Line of Duty. His latest work saw him score the Netflix film Fatal Affair, starring Omar Epps and Nia Long, which is something of a reverse fatal attraction, I think is probably the best way to describe it. He's also scored animation series such as Tony Hale's Archibald's Next Big Thing, also for Netflix, Thundercats Raw, and the upcoming HBO Max series Aquaman King of Atlantis. In the interview, we talk about his route into the industry and touch on all those current shows that he's scoring right now, along with chatting about some of his work on the multitude of Christmas films that he's had over the years. There are quite a lot. If you'd like to hear more behind the scenes interviews, don't forget to subscribe to wherever you get your podcast by searching for Geek Town Radio. This will also give you our weekly Geek Town Radio podcast, which brings you all the latest TV, film and gaming news. You can go to the website at geektown.co.uk for daily news stories and all the latest UK and US premiere dates. Here's the interview with Matthew Jensen. <laughs> It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Thank you for coming on and chatting to me. It's uh, no, very no, nice to have you on. And no, thank you so much. We've got a few things we can talk about, really. I mean, Fatal Affair, which is the Netflix movie you've been doing, is probably the, the most prominent thing. But you've also been working on Thundercats Raw as well, which I think we should touch on. Before we get into the stuff you've been working on, how did you get into the industry in the first place? Well, it was kind of a gradual progression for me um, because I kind of came out here after graduate school, knowing that I wanted to do this at that point. And uh, so I guess 
guess kind of my first like major step into the industry was getting a job working for Christoph Beck. Right. So I assisted for him for a couple of years obviously learned a lot doing that. And then I also ended up assisting for a composer by the name of Mark Killian, who shared a studio with Chris at the time. And so I worked for him as well. And in fact, actually ended up working for him for another probably four or five years. And so a lot of that was just obviously assisting, but just learning, learning the business as much as possible and, and trying to get a foothold in, into what I was doing. And then it was right after, during that assistant job that I ended up uh, sort of landing my first, what I call a major project, which was a television movie uh, for Lifetime. And uh, so that's when I kind of got my first foot in the door to start scoring stuff that was actually being distributed somewhere. And then after that, it just kind of was grew from there, just project by project, year by year. I think the other thing that kind of got me in was also starting to do additional music for other composers. So I kind of learned not just on my own projects, but learned from other composers, getting notes from other composers about what I was doing and just kind of continued to hone my skills until Finally, I was able to uh, get a a manager and then some access to applying for other shows, which ended up the niche I ended up getting into besides the television movies was animation. And so um, that's what eventually got me into doing that. So that's kind of the two worlds I live in right now, which is kind of television movies and animation are kind of the two things that I do the most of. So it was a gradual progression. It wasn't definitely wasn't an overnight thing. It was just kind of every little step, every little thing you do, every person you meet just gradually lead you to opportunity. And then hopefully when the opportunity comes knocking, you can deliver something that someone wants. And uh, that's what gets you a job. Yeah, definitely. There's quite a few people that have gone through the, the sort of assistant route, I think. That, that seems mm-hmm. to be quite a popular way of doing it. Um, yeah. I'm just looking through your IMDB, I've just spotted you, you did some additional orchestration on line of duty, according to this. Oh, Carly. Yeah. 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 I did oh, some orchestration for her. Um, I met her through a mutual acquaintance who I'd worked for with a trailer company called Sensit. So yeah, he had recommended me over there. Uh, a guy named by the, uh, Mike Zarin rec- recommended me to Carly to do some orchestration. That's how we met. And honestly, I've actually never met Carly in person yet. It was <laughs> just, uh, it was all like she was, you know, she was across the pond and we were just chatting over the phone and uh, do, via email about some work that she needed. And I just jumped right on board. It was really fun. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Weirdly, Line of Duty was a show that's completely bypassed me. And last night I happened to start watching it because it's all on Netflix now over here. So, um, oh, right. so and, and I, I just missed it the first time it went out. And then it was like six seasons in, like whatever it was. And I never got around to catching up with it. But uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, so I literally last night I just started watching that. That's why it just stood out at me. Anyway, the, on, on to your, your main thing you've been working on recently, which is Fatal Affair, which is a, a Netflix movie with uh, Nina Long and Omar Epps. It's a really interesting film because it's sort of a thriller, but it feels like a bit of a kind of throwback thriller to those sort of big 90s ones as well. Um, so, oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So how did you get involved with it in the first place? Well, this was a kind of a long relationship that I've had. So I had mentioned I started with television movies. Yeah. Um, and earlier in my career, in the earlier television movies, there was a, another, uh, well, a director who had done a Christmas 
film named Peter Sullivan. And we did this film called 12 Wishes of Christmas. And he asked me after doing my first television movie, he saw that and he was like, I would like you to do this Christmas film if you're interested. So I said, sure. That was actually my first Christmas movie I ever, ever did. And that just started a really wonderful collaboration and long relationship with him. And we, by the time Fatal Affair happened, I had done maybe close to 20 films with him. So we had, you know, quite the relationship and a shorthand for how we worked. And, uh, you know, it's kind of always the dream of a composer to, to meet directors you can kind of consistently work with. Um, and so that's essentially how Fatal Affair came about was Peter reached out to me and said, hey, I'm doing this film for Netflix. Would you like to be a part of it? And he, he explained to me and I said, of course. Uh, so um, <laughs> it was uh, that that's essentially how I got into it was just because of that relationship with Peter. What was your approach for the film and how did you go about finding the tone for it? The tone for the film really centered a lot around David's character first is what we kind of discussed uh, the most in the beginning. He kind of unravels as the show progresses. And it was it was kind of an interesting movie in the sense that for me, because a lot of the thr- I've done a lot of thrillers with Peter and a lot of the thrillers tend to get to the intense stuff pretty quickly. There's always like you have an opener, you know, you kind of introduce some characters and then usually within the fifth, first 15 minutes of a film, there is some major action sequence or something big goes down that has to be addressed. And then it, it kind of does this ebb and flow throughout the whole movie. Mm. Uh, Fatal Affair is a little different because we really talked a lot about how it slowly builds and how David's character starts relatively harmless as, as a, an old college buddy. Yeah. Um, and the score had to be very careful to not like tip the scales too dangerous too quickly. And I think that was the key for, for me and the way the tone kind of evolved was the fact that, yes, there's something uncomfortable about him as he progresses forward and he keeps kind of interjecting himself into Ellie's life. But I wanted to make sure that we weren't to the danger part yet. So I think part of the tone was trying to figure out his psychology and how he just kind of unraveled to be someone who just really is not in touch with what's going on. And and then, of course, his previous relationship, you know, with his ex-wife, all that kind of stuff had to kind of tie into this build that I had to create. So that's where essentially a lot of the tone and inspiration came from for creating the score. Yeah. And I was going to mention about the fact that with these sort of thriller things, you are working a very fine line a lot of the time of not tipping off what's about to happen but also building the tension at the same time I guess exactly and that's probably one of the biggest things that came up when we were you know when you're getting notes and refining the score is just how much weight are we now okay David's taking it one step further how much weight do we want to give to this moment so that by the time we get to the more dangerous parts that we haven't already tipped that scale too far that we have room to grow as it progresses so I think my focus was more on making it uncomfortable for her and making it the audience essentially feel uncomfortable with her as he kind of goes, okay, well, where is this going? Like, why is he, what, what's he eventually, what's the end game here? You know, when he's just completely delusional about the fact that he thinks he has a relationship with this woman. So yeah. How would you describe the score for the film overall for people that haven't seen it yet? I say that if I had to describe it, the word is uncomfortable in the sense that I think it's definitely two worlds, a combination. We talked 
a lot about David. There's two worlds. It's a combination of acoustic instruments and synthetic instruments or synth instruments. And the acoustic world is more in terms of Ellie. So I used cello and piano and things to represent a more melancholy feeling. She's obviously not happy in her current marriage. And mm. there's some there's some backstory there. So I kept that world pretty acoustic and with her relationship with her current husband. Then when David enters the picture, I add a lot more synthetic sounds. And essentially a lot of that was just due to the fact that I needed things to feel slightly uncomfortable, but I also needed his world to be separate from hers. Yeah. And that it, it's, and then so as the score progresses, they kind of come together. Those two worlds kind of start blending a little bit to show that his, this synthetic, uncomfortable, suspenseful world is now starting to overtake this more acoustic world, which represented essentially her life prior to him entering it. Yeah, that makes sense. In terms of the instruments you say you're using synths mm -hmm. and the stuff in there, are you playing live on a lot of those or are you using samples and stuff to build it? A majority of it's samples in this case. And that was mostly because I wanted to alter the sound of things quite a bit. Right. Um, so the acoustic stuff was so minimal that I knew I could, I, I like a lot of, there's a lot of piano in there. I am a piano player. So right. if anything's recorded live, that's the thing that's usually recorded live for me is because I know I can do that to where I want it to be. But because a majority of the film had to be synthetic, I focused more on the synths and creating some new sounds. I mean, one of the interesting things I, I ended up doing was um, there's kind of this very kind of rare instrument. And this kind of came about because Peter had mentioned that he wanted some sort of motif to kind of represent the the film overall and then mm. kind of kind of hit like a little motive that kind of every time you hear it it kind of represents how this is unraveling and so i came up with this little three note thing but i used it on this instrument called the u-phone and it's a sampled instrument actually by a company called spitfire audio and they sampled this very rare instrument. They're not readily available. And to get one, it's, it's very expensive and it's very hard to get. And I think they only make them over in Europe. But one of the guys who works at Spitfire owns this and he sampled this instrument. But the interesting thing about it is actually it's not the, the intention of the instrument is more of a it has kind of a, a wine glass kind of sound to it. Like if you were to rub your okay. finger on a wine glass, it makes that sound kind of more subtle sound in that way. So there's these glass rods that you rub your fingers on with water and it makes this kind of beautiful glassy kind of sound but that's actually not what i used in the film which is the core of that instrument he took these mallets and he hit the instrument with these mallets and it creates this really weird kind of out of tune atonal sound and i loved it and i was like wow i really want that but when you looked at the sample library it was only like a few keys on the keyboard because it was atonal so it didn't match up with any particular pitch it was just kind of a sound so what i did was i actually took those sounds and tuned them to be closer to pitches. And then I ended up making an instrument where I mapped that particular sound over the whole keyboard so I could actually play it like oh, a wow. mallet instrument, then utilize that for this motive that Peter and I were talking about, which just kind of goes throughout the film as it progresses. And it was it just it sounds slightly off, which is why I liked about it, because it <laughs> kind of represented David. because yeah. He's kind of slightly off. <laughs> so um, and then by the end, he's off his rockers. So, you know, it's, yeah, yeah. it's kind of fun to utilize that instrument that's awesome are you one of these composers that keeps an eye out for like weird instruments do you collect them or is that a sort of your wife would probably go nuts if you started to do that <laughs> uh, yeah. i don't i actually don't 
collect a ton of instruments. I do play guitar and piano, so I do collect. Uh, I don't. I, I collect. I don't know. I I buy them if I think I'm going to play them. But yeah, I know some composers actually collect quite a few of the weird instruments. That's actually not my area that I do because I I just I like working within some of the synthetic stuff when it right. comes to creating weird sounds. Like to have just start with something so basic inside the computer and then see where it goes from there is actually pretty exciting to me to do that and utilize the technology. I think a lot of it just stems from the fact that my first degree was in engineering and I I just was so into math and science that using computers and computer language and computer programming and stuff like that has always still been kind of in the back of my mind and sort of a passion of mine. So I think, you know, that's why when I focused on the synths and Fatal Affair, I I enjoy kind of going in there and, and tweaking a lot of the electronic sounds to get what I want. So that's kind of my playground. Yeah. Um, and particularly in, in this movie. So, Do you have a particular favorite part of what you did for that project? I do like, I think probably one of my favorite scenes, and it was probably the least complicated musically, but they're in this restaurant and he finally says the name of his ex-wife. And uh, I just really liked how bizarrely uncomfortable that scene was. That, that, that was like the moment where you kind of tell, like he's just in his own little fantasy world. Right. And uh, I just liked that scene because I think just, I think the performance was so good in it that I was able to really kind of step back and just focus on keeping the situation feeling uncomfortable and pointing out these smaller, it was a, it was a more subtle scene. And I think that's why I liked it. I liked, I liked dealing with some of those more subtle dialogue scenes. I think they're very challenging to do so that by the time you get to the end of them, you, you know, you feel like you've helped progress the story a little bit further. Yeah, definitely. Just moving on from Fatal Affair, some of the other stuff sure. you've worked on. One of the other things most recently is Thundercats Raw, which mm-hmm. is, of course, I mean, you couldn't really be more different. Uh, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a new version of Thundercats, which is aimed at a younger audience. For sure. uh, very different animation style to the, the previous versions of it. Are you still using some of the original score? Because that's fairly iconic at this point. Absolutely. I was actually very excited about that. And, and um, when I got the job and they had said that they had permission to use, I don't remember the exact number, but let's just say probably about 10 to 15 of the original themes from the original series. And I was just, I was stoked about that. So what, what we did was to give us maximum flexibility, I recreated those cues in the computer using the synths or the essentially the samples so that I could then have maximum flexibility in how they were used within the series. I could speed them up. I could slow them down. I could remove instruments. I could add instruments. And so it was really fun to um, explore that and get to use those themes because Bernard Hoffer's music in that is, like you said, it's iconic. Yeah. And it, I mean, I had already listened to the music before, but it was actually really fun to then have to dive in and really understand what's going on with the harmonies and melodies and, and really orchestrate it out again. And so it kind of gave me a little primer for the show and it already kind of established what the vibe of the show is going to be. That the, the difficulty was more about, okay, well, this show is obviously a comedy. Yeah. The Thunder Gore, an action comedy is probably what I would call it. Trying to figure out how we're how we're going to utilize those themes in this new world was probably the challenge, but it was still really fun to uh, to get a chance to use all those. And then on top of that, the score obviously consists of a lot of Bernard Hoffer's music in that way, repurposed. And then there's new characters and new new places and new situations they find themselves in. So I then interject my own original music to either bridge Bernard's music together, scene to scene, or there's new characters. I have whole new themes and whole new ideas that have to be put forward. 
forth. I mean, there's there's entire episodes where we don't use any of the original music. And then there's some episodes where it's almost all the original music. And then some episodes are in between. So it's really fun to kind of go back and forth between that music and and try to when I wrote a new theme, I was thinking of it more in terms of adding to the glossary that's already there. So I didn't want to like go outside of the instrumentation and the world that Bernard Hoffer already created. I stayed within that world, that, that instrumentation and that vibe so that every time a new character came up, we were writing music that was still like it felt like it was still part of the whole canon yeah. of score. Yeah, that makes sense. Were you working on these projects at the same time or was there overlap or, or are they kind of two completely separate things? Because I know it's probably quite nice actually being able to have two completely juxtaposed projects to work on. Overlapping projects is, is really fun for me. I, I think it's when you <laughs> I, I divide things up usually by by day. Uh, I mean, like I don't I don't usually switch. I wouldn't work on Thundercats one day and switch over to something like Fatal Affair in the same day. But I do switch with within the weeks. And I actually find it's, you know, it's kind of what makes a film composer a film composer. It's like the the ability to change styles on, yeah. a, on a dime. And particularly in animation, we already have to do that on a regular basis because a lot of times animation has what I call like one-off cues. So I, even in Thundercats, for instance, there's like a scene where he goes into a store and there's this bossa nova playing or something. And I'm like, you know, completely out <laughs> of the context of the rest of the score, but it's a joke. It's supposed to be for a joke. So whenever you're dealing with comedies, particularly animation comedies, there's always these one-off cues that you have to just completely throw out a brand new style within yeah. the this world. So I, I'm fairly used to switching gears a lot, now, but I think that's what makes the job fun. In terms of Fatal Affair and Thundercats, that was actually just bizarrely serendipitous that Fatal Affair basically started scoring proper right at the end of my post-production schedule for Thundercats. Right. So uh, by the time I had started like really diving into Fatal Affair, Thundercats for me at that time was finished for the year. So I was like, great. So that it kind of worked out. It did. It doesn't always work out that way, but I was a little thankful that it did because I could at least focus more time on trying to get the, the movie done since it's a, a larger you know amount of music for in a shorter amount of time that I have to get. Yeah. get out the door yeah so. my favorite one of those that had two overlapping projects was dominic lewis who uh-huh. is composer on man in the high castle also does ducktales mm-hmm. <laughs> oh yeah no. so you couldn't really have two more opposite projects either. no i i love both of those shows so they're and they're very great scores and they are quite different so yeah that would be uh but yeah i think it's just par for the course i think that's yeah. just what we do in this industry we're always kind of switching gears and not only that when a composer's obviously working on certain projects they may be applying for other shows or so then not only are they working on a project but then they're also trying to create a whole new sound for something else to see if they can get, you know, another gig later on, you know, yeah. to keep the work coming in. And so, yeah, you just, you're every, every week that within that week, I'm always having to switch gears on something, particularly too, but the thing about Thundercats was you switch gears because there's songs in Thundercats Roar, which unlike the original. Right, and yeah. so those usually happen earlier in production. So like in, in animation, you have to write the song prior to it being animated because then they will animate. Yes, to particularly the, when people yeah. are seen on screen, they animate to the song so that the the and everything sync up with the whole action. And so what would happen on Thundercats is I'd be scoring some episodes and then they'd be reaching out to me and go, hey, 10 episodes down the line, we have a song. So then I'd be like one week scoring an episode and then writing a song that has nothing to do with that current episode, something completely different, whether it was a Christmas song or a blues song or something separately on top of that week. So yeah, it's that's just how it is. And it's one of the reasons I love the job. Yeah, I mean, that that's great being able 
well to write songs as well because that doesn't necessarily happen that often as a film from composer either i guess no it doesn't i mean i was kind of thrust into songwriting uh, just because of the nature of some of the projects i've worked on they kind of go hey can you write a song you know and yeah. it wasn't something i actually was necessarily pursuing but uh, you know as i continued to do it i was like oh this is really fun and it is a very very different process to write a song than it is to score and yeah. so um i i enjoy kind of switching back and forth and for me it kind of does utilize two different sides of the brain sometimes um, when you're scoring versus writing a song. Yeah, absolutely. There is something that's come up a couple of times when we've been talking. Christmas, are you a really big fan or are you kind of sick of it now? Because you go through your IMDb, there's like 17 Christmas movies in your IMDb. <laughs> um, I love Christmas. I will absolutely admit that I've always enjoyed listening to Christmas music, even when I was younger. And then by the time I ended up doing the Christmas films, I, I will say, I think I'd be sick of it if I was doing it all year long obviously yes. but for me it's like you know the christmas films usually come in in the late early early fall sometimes and mm. so when it comes in they're they're kind of nice to break up yeah there's like nothing happier than a christmas film so it's like it's like comfort food you know it's like you just <laughs> kind of come in and you cozy up to it and you're like oh this is nice to kind of interject my day with this really happy score and so i look forward to it each year when it comes around if it comes around and i get to kind of dive into the christmas world a little early it kind of gets me set up for the season so yeah. but yeah I, I'm guilty totally guilty of that person who would like turn on Christmas music at the end of September or whatever and people <laughs> roll their eyes at me and go what are you doing and I'm like I'm sorry it puts me in a good mood I can't help it <laughs> yeah yeah I mean at least it's it's kind of fall and you know you're not doing it in the height of summer or spring or so that might be a little bit weirder but you know you, you're heading in towards Thanksgiving and then that's kind of <laughs> Christmas. So, you know, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think that the thing about the Christmas films is I don't get annoyed with having to do them um, or I'm not annoyed by Christmas by doing so many of them. But yeah. I think the challenge with the Christmas films is always, well, how do I do this one differently? Yes. Because a lot, they're almost always centered around romance to some degree. And um, a lot of these companies will output I mean, every year, the, the, you know, whether it's Hallmark or Lifetime or whatever, sometimes they're outputting between 30 to 50 of these new ones a year. And, you know, so obviously the stories do get rehashed in different ways and different variations. So every time I get one, it's always just the challenge is how do I do it differently? And I mostly just do that from the standpoint of, you know, wanting to keep it interesting for myself as well, you know, in terms of kind of coming up with new ideas on how to score a Christmas film. But that's always the challenge. And, and like one of the directors I worked on Fatal Affair with, I've done a lot of Christmas films with him. And every time we come to a new project, we always bring that up. We're always kind of like, okay, so I want to try something new, you know, I try, I try a new idea with this one, you know, and so yeah. it is kind of fun to see how many, how many ways can we do it? You know? <laughs> yeah, that, that's fun. One of the next projects you've, been, well, you may be working on at the moment, actually, the Aquaman Killing of Atlantis, which is another animated thing for uh, this one for HBO Max. Um, yeah. I, and he's, he's much more, as I understand it from the bits I've read, he's much more of the sort of family orientated version of Aquaman than a yes. sort of yeah than a, like the movie version sort of thing right right it's definitely not it's not going to be like an animated version of the movie they're definitely going to gear it towards the family versions although I do believe the story is a continuation right. um, but you know it is an animated show miniseries in this way and so I think it is going to be geared more towards uh, a larger 
a wider sort of audience and the families in that way. So. Right. Yeah. And if it's a sort of continuation of the film stories, are you using some of the music from that and then reworking it or is it completely new? This will be completely new. Okay, cool. Yeah, we've uh, I can't talk a ton about yeah, what we've, we've done, but I can just say that, you know, uh, I, I got very excited about it because uh, Victor Courtright, who is show running this as, as well as Marley Halpern Grazer, we were um, talking about what we thought the sound of this show could be. And so obviously we talked a lot about superhero films in general and just kind of like, well, yeah, obviously we're going to have some big heroic themes. I mean, that's just kind of part of working within the superhero genre. But uh, on top of that, you know, I think we've come up with some interesting sort of I'll just call them like retro vibes uh, to sort of bring this into like kind of an interesting funky space. And I think it's going to be really fun to share this with everyone once we nail it down. But um, it is it's definitely going to be different than I think what most people would expect from a superhero film. So I'm quite excited about where it's going and I can't wait to share it, but still working. Yes, still still going. That's good. You working on anything else at the moment that you could talk about? I know that's often not the case, but (laughs) the only thing I'm working on that I'm able to talk about is uh, another animated show called Archibald's Next Big Thing. Yes, that's the Netflix series. It's Tony Hale, isn't it? Yes, Tony Hale. Tony Hale created it and uh, is, is show ran as well by another awesome animator, story writer uh, named Eric Fogel, who created the show called Celebrity Deathmatch. Right, yes. They run it. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderfully fun show. It's on Netflix. There's uh, there's still more to come. So I'm, I'm pretty excited to share some of that as well. What's the music like for that show? <laughs> we have a running joke now where it's kind of like you know every time i have a meeting with them you know we meet obviously every week or every other week to look at the next episode and talk about what the music's going to be and I, I just kind of joke about it because that particular team has thrown i think every speaking of styles has thrown almost every style of music imaginable <laughs> at me and so archibald has really tested me and challenged me to explore a lot of styles that some of which are in my comfort zone and some of which are are totally out of my comfort zone. And so it's been really fun to kind of, you know, challenge myself in that way. So the music for the show, I mean, the, the general sound of Archibald that we do use throughout every single episode is what I would call indie quirk. So it, it definitely has, uh, it's very guitar based, um, but it's very quirky. And I use uh, like uh, the instrument called the Mellotron a yes. lot in the score, which is one of the key instruments in there. But, you know, guitars too used in not conventional ways. So a lot of it's muted guitar stuff or muted mandolins and um, very plunky and plucky and um, a lot of light percussion. I actually recorded. um, So I took a bunch of uh, sound effects uh, where I recorded eggs. So uh, smashing eggs, cracking eggs, uh, tapping eggs and all that stuff, because the town they live in is called Crack Ridge. And so obviously it's in all the homes and all the restaurants and businesses and everything are all egg shaped. And so I just thought it would be really fun to infuse some of that idea in to the score. So I recorded some eggs. So, and then I uh, created a percussion instrument that I play on the keyboard uh, that just has all these different egg cracking sounds and stuff. So <laughs> I, I play a percussion instrument as part of the, the quirky other stuff that's going on. No one would ever notice and know that that's just going on. But I think I just, you just do that because it's just kind of fun to find inspiration in other things. And, and you want to create, I think the biggest thing is I wanted to create kind of an, an original quirky sound for this show. Mm. And so regardless of whether or not someone knows notices that it's an egg. It doesn't matter. What they will notice is that it's a unique sound that they're hearing when they hear that particular quirkiness of the show. But beyond the quirky nature of the show, 
which is throughout the entire series, is whatever Archibald is doing in that episode is what influences the music of that episode. So right. there's been episodes where he goes into space. So then I'm writing this massive space opera, orchestral John Williamsy kind of thing. And then there's another show where he was joining a biker gang, but it was all 80s based. And so like the entire score was 80s synths. Then there's other episodes where they're doing race cars. And it just it's, it's amazing how many styles I've had to do on that show. But I think it's the premise of the show, though. You know, he goes, yeah. you know, Archibald based on a children's book where essentially, you know, he was always searching for his next big thing. And uh, it, it turns out it's right in front of him. And that is just the whole le- lesson of Archibald is to just be present and enjoy what's around you now. And that's what the show is about is he's a very, very, as Tony says, a very present chicken. And um, he just <laughs> appreciates and finds joy in every single thing that he encounters in his life. So when he goes off on all these adventures, the music has to go with him. And yeah. so that's kind of why it's it's a difficult show to say what the score does. Does sometimes because it does a lot. I mean, we did, we did a film noir episode too. So then it was like, <laughs> that was really fun to kind of dive into this, like, you know, darker world with these, this more older approach to the episode. I even ran the episode through like old vinyl vintage kind of sounding plugins and stuff to kind of give it that retro vibe to nice. it. So, so yeah, every episode is a challenge, but it does, it does make the week interesting. I joke because in television, a lot of times composers will reuse cues for future yeah. episodes, obviously, because as you develop the library of music, it becomes very easy to do that. Yeah. And I said, and I just joke with my assistant all the time. I'm like an Archibald, we can't do it. Like it doesn't <laughs> exist. Like that you can't use the space episode in the film noir episode. It's yeah. not going to work. So, but yeah, that's kind of the challenge with that show. And that's what the score does. I, I think that's the lovely thing about shows like that. And quite often with animation and stuff as well, that sort of forces you to find the weirder things to go out and kind of, you know, look for odd sounds and stuff for those. Oh, absolutely. They really wanted that part of it because Archibald is he's I want to say odd duck as a, as a phrase, but he's a chicken. Um, yeah. But it's uh, it's um, you you do always want to find that quirky sound. But I think it's true of like every show you work on. You you want to create the world for it. I mean, that's our job is to create a world and then let the audience into that world. And part of that creation is the sound and what what's going to be unique and interesting about this show that you're working on. Um, and I think nowadays it's even more the idea of sounds. It's overwhelming, yet at the same time, very exciting because almost anything can be an instrument now. And I think the way that people are scoring now is so different. Like I told you with the eggs, like I just don't think that that's something that a lot of composers are doing nowadays too. I remember I was, I forget where I was, was at, but I remember Robert Duncan, who's also a huge TV composer. And, um, he was doing a show. It was going to take place on a submarine. And I remember he said he went to a submarine and like, just created like some sounds from that. And he said he didn't end up using it. Cause a lot of times when you, when you work on like that superficial level where you're kind of like, Oh, it's a show with eggs in it. So let's record some eggs. At the end of the day, you still got to write music that works for the story. And so if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But it's still, I think what it is, is it's not stemming from the fact that, oh, I'm going to record submarine sounds because I think it's right for the story. I think I'm going to record submarine sounds because I'm looking to find a unique way of presenting the music. Yeah. And the, you know, and I think that's what composers are doing nowadays is, is like you said, collecting instruments or whatever it is that strikes your interest. Everyone's looking for new ways to reinvent the way music is presented. And so it's very exciting. But like I said, 
it's also overwhelming because like anything can be an instrument. So you're always yeah. like, you're like, how do I narrow down the focus and what does this show need before it gets, you know, too out of control? But what does this show need to really make it unique? So yeah, absolutely. I was interviewing Jake Monaco, who's the guy that does, he does. Oh, uh, he's one of my good friends. Yeah. Yeah. I was interviewing Jake. And I remember him saying he got shouted at by his partner because there was a thing in dino trucks. It was a robot that had scissors on the front of it or had like snippy things on the front of it. So partner comes in and goes, where are all the scissors? And he's like, um, and he's like there with a handful of scissors because he'd been recording with them like every scissor in the house. Jake is the master at that though. Like he's one of those guys that collects all the instruments. I like when yeah, I walk yeah, into the yeah. studio, he baskets upon baskets of, of, stuff. of stuff. Yeah, no, you know, I, d- like, you know. I did a video interview with him in the studio with him kind of showing me around the studio and all the instruments and stuff. It's just nuts. Yeah, he's really into that. And he always, yeah, he's always finding new and unique ways. I mean, a lot of that, I, I've my interest in it too, it comes from working with him on certain things too and watching him work and going, oh, wow, like you really do create stuff out of out of anything. And so yeah. I, I, I always think it's fun to be inspired by what other people are doing to see how it, how it influences how you want to proceed on a project and just keeping in touch with the rest of the community to see what everyone's doing. And like I said, like that's a very popular thing nowadays, which is to hone in on creating new sounds, which I think a lot of that also stems from the top where you think of people like Hans Zimmer, who are really at the forefront of those ideas and mm-hmm. how he he'll create a brand new sound for something. And then it's wholly original and brand new. And all of a sudden you hear it in every trailer yeah. because it becomes so popular, you know, but he, he originally intended something to be created for a movie that was completely brand new. And then it becomes, you know, immensely popular. And now it's like part of the language now of music. It's like, it's like an instrument yeah. that we all know, or it's something that is part of what we, we work on now. And so it's definitely, I think, an interesting time versus just always looking to the acoustic instruments and saying you feel that's the parameters you live in. Now it's like the world's your oyster. Like everything is music making. Yeah, absolutely. There's some amazing stuff out there and there's some wonderful, wonderful work being done. Um, the other person I interviewed was um, Nate Barr. I've done oh. Nate Barr multiple times and it's been hilarious because I did him first about six years ago. You know about Nate Barr and the organ. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's- he, yeah. he has the studio with the the, the, the with the Fox organ, organ. Yeah, yeah with the the Fox organ in it so like the first time I spoke to him he just bought it and was all excited because he just bought it and then I've interviewed him about five or six times since then and every stage of it it's like how's the organ coming along how's the studio and uh, last time I interviewed him he literally just finished it and and was like yeah we started to use it in things and he's like everything is just going to have that organ in it now <laughs> well after all that work into it but I mean it has such a plethora of sounds oh, and no. stuff. I mean I it's, it's crazy the thing on Nate Barr that's so cool is he really finds ways to utilize like an instrument in yeah. like a lot of different ways. I mean, it, in, it, that's just a great lesson to learn from his music is the fact that like when I watch the show True Blood yeah. and I listen to how he uses the cello and I know he's a cellist, but he has utilized that instrument to like the fullest extent. He gets so many different kinds of sounds out of that. I mean, that score is so incredible to not only think of creating new instruments or that, but he's taking an instrument that everyone knows 
but he has used it in such interesting ways that he has created a whole new sound for particularly that show in particular that I'm talking about. But he's the master at really getting the most out of an instrument. So if anybody's going to own a theater organ that has a gazillion things to use in it, it should be him because he is going to he is going to use everything that he can to get that the the sounds out of that. So, yeah, yeah. Two last final questions and I will let you go. First question is, what TV shows are you watching at the moment? Well, that's funny. It's True Blood is the one we're binging right now. And that was mostly just because HBO Max came out. My wife and I had never had HBO. Right. So we jumped on HBO Max train just to kind of check it out. And, you know, all these streaming services are coming out. And one of the things that had popped up was True Blood. And my wife and I are a big fan of like vampire type shows and stuff. Like we love the underworld movies and all that stuff. And so we're like, let's check this out. So, yeah, we're we're binging that right now, which is why I was very familiar with Nathan Barr's music in that because I was like, this score is really good. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it is brilliant. I love Nate's stuff because there's that and there's the Americans and he did the uh, what's the Amazon show that he just done. Carnival Row. Carnival Row, yes. Just phenomenal, some of his work. And Carnival Row does have the the acclaimed organ in it as well. I've heard, I did. He did a little, when Emmys are are kind of circling around, there's a lot of like four-year consideration advertisements and things. And he had one that was a little video of him talking about the organ and how it was used in Carnival Row and the main title and stuff. And I was, it was, it was fascinating. So So the moment he finished that, every state in everything now, (laughs) it's like you can play with with Nate stuff. Now you play spot the organ. (laughs) I can imagine that that's what you'd want to do. I mean, building a studio and that it's gotta be so stressful. I mean, I mean, I built my, my studio and it is stressful, but not of that size. That studio would be stressful, not to mention probably getting that organ up and running and refurbished and working and stuff. So uh, yeah, once it's done, you bet your butt it's going (laughs) to (laughs) be. Yeah, absolutely. Last question. If you had the opportunity to work on any TV show, can be something from the past, something present or some future genre, not something you've worked on, what show would it be? Star Trek Voyager. (laughs) Specifically Voyager as well. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a Trekkie. Um, I I don't know if I should call myself a Trekkie. It's like I've never been to the conventions yet or not, but don't think I haven't done it. But I I do love like Star Trek. Star Trek is like one of the shows that if one I've seen a, a lot of them already. I'm actually going through Deep Space Nine right now because I hadn't oh. seen Deep Space Nine before. But um, really? like Next Generation and stuff, like I would just turn that on and just have it on, like just in the background sometimes because it's just my show that I just love to watch. But Voyager is my favorite one that they've created uh, right. from that team, and I just I've always loved Kate Mulgrew as the captain, and I loved that cast, and I loved that story arc. The interesting thing about Voyager was it was kind of before nowadays televisions because of binge watching television shows have long arcs to them. Like yeah. They're, they're one through line that's tr- trying to go somewhere where back when Voyager was made and, and all that, everything was much more episodic. So it was more, you know, new adventure. Here we go. Here's the adventure. Here's the end of the episode. We're done. We're moving on. But the thing I always loved about Voyager was this kind of a precursor, even though it was still very episodic, it was kind of a precursor to the idea of having one long through arc to the yeah. whole story, just the idea of them trying to get back home. I think 
think that's what always got me hooked on the show is the fact that, yeah, not every episode dealt with that particular element of the show, but it was always there and it was always leading them down the pathway to trying to figure out how to get home. And so I think that's what kind of always got me attracted to the show and got me hooked to it. Um, So uh, not to mention, like I said, Kate Mulgrew in that that position. She was just so fabulous as a a captain. So if I ever got a chance to score anything with her in it or the uh, Star Trek related, of course, I would just be like over the moon. Like it would be amazing. (laughs) Well, there are plenty of Star Trek things going around. It's uh, Jeff Russo that does most of them, I think, at this point. So, you know, just side look to Jeff Russo. He's he's really, and he's done a great job. I just watched, uh, we had done Picard. My wife and I watched through Picard and, uh, you know, really enjoyed it. And uh, his score is is phenomenal for that. So, yeah, it's, uh, I know he's he's in that world. But hopefully, you know, if if Paramount slash CBS keeps um, producing more and more Star Trek stuff, maybe there'll be some opportunity down the line. That's kind of the dream within the dream. You know, it's like what I'm doing right now, I absolutely adore and love. And it's like, I would never change it for anything. But of course, even within your own profession, you go, well, that would be (laughs) be like, uh, you know, I could say I conquered Hollywood if I did that, you know? And so I think Star Trek, just because as a consumer, as a person who watches television, I just have always loved Star Trek. And I love the idea of Star Trek and not just the shows themselves, but the whole like ideals, you know, behind Gene Roddenberry mm. and, and what he came up with. I just think it's so much fun. And uh, I love uh, and I've always loved the music and like Dennis McCarthy, who's done like a majority of the Star Trek t- television universe, particularly, you know, I've always liked his style and stuff. And I know now the style of scoring has changed quite drastically yeah. over time. It, 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 it evolved. The, the process of scoring evolves, um, of course, too. But it's uh, I think I've always just been attracted to the idea of Star Trek and, and the idea of scoring one of those at some point. So but I still got time. I yeah, still got time. Yeah. So. Well, then it's like not like they're going to stop making them at this point. I mean, they're, they're going all out. You've also got two animated series. I mean, you've got Lower Decks out now and they've got Star Trek Prodigy, I think is the other one. That's the Nickelodeon <laughs> show. There's that coming out <laughs> later, which is aimed at a, you know, a younger audience. Right. So, you know, there's the animation stuff. Jeff can't do everything. <laughs> <laughs> I know. So, you know, I, th- I think at some point there's, there's going to be some room. So I got my fingers crossed and I'm always keeping my ears ears open in town to see if eventually yeah. I could be considered for one of those shows. But yeah. like I said, I got time and uh, hopefully at some point it'll it'll hit. Yeah, that, w- that will be awesome. I-, I hope it comes your way one day. I hope so. Well, it's been lovely to chat with you. It's been really, really nice. Hopefully we get to talk again at some point when one of your next projects comes out. Thank you for having me. I hope so. All right. Talk to you soon. Cheers. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.